0: Growing up as an extremely devout follower of Metallica, I was enamored by the scene that spawned them. Throughout the 80s, the San Francisco Bay Area metal scene was like a magical Willy Wonka-like factory of thrash, churning out one incredible band after the other. It's easy for the younger generation to look at the list of bands from that time and casually shrug off their importance— but it was an undeniable breeding ground that gave rise to a list of bands that would have all individually marshaled other city scenes. So potent was the talent spawned from there. Having had to listen to older folk prattle on about the 60s and 70s and how much I'd missed out, getting to live through the thrash metal era gave me a chance to now prattle back. But of course, I lived in Toronto, and yes, we did have our distinguished representatives like Sacrifice and Mal Havoc, but San Francisco was kind of like the metallic El Dorado, a scene we all wished we could have taken part in. With the resurgence of thrash metal and newer bands like Municipal Waste, Evil, SSS, Bonded by Blood, Skeleton Witch, and Warbringer carrying on the torch of thrash, the genre has recently received a long-overdue revival. The recent string of Big Four shows confirm the comeback, and as valedictorians of the scene, bands like Metallica, Exodus, and Megadeth's worldwide fame and infamy have elevated the scene into mythic status. Just in case you don't know, the Big Four are actually Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax. And the timing couldn't be more perfect for Murder in the Front Row, a 272 full-color page photo book by Harold Oyman and Brian Liu, published by Bazillion Points in November of 2011. It's a comprehensive visual guide to the San Francisco Bay Area thrash scene of the 80s, which will, upon first glance, stir up inspiration, rekindle interest, and act as a primer into the scene that, for all intents and purposes, created a worldwide phenomenon. The photos contained in the book will leave every fan frothing at the mouth and captivate even casual onlookers, as it is such an insider's look into the world of young Metallica, young Slayer, when times were more innocent and a lot more hedonistic, before the suits swept in and monetized it into the streamlined big business it is today. Last summer, our band played the Devilside Festival in Oberhausen, Germany, with a string of great bands like Overkill, Arch Enemy, Doro, Royal Republic, and In Flames. But I was most excited to see D.R.I., mainly because I wanted to meet Harold Eumann, co-author of Murder in the Front Row, and now D.R.I. bassist. We arrived too late to catch them that day, but luckily Harold was still around and we got to hang out for a while, hatching plans for this podcast you're about to hear, and finally nailed down through Skype seven months later. I don't know how much more inside you can get than Harold Oyman, someone who had such a first-hand account of the Bay Area metal scene, not only through his camera lens, but also through his friendships with these bands before they became stars. Although this episode was done by myself with Harold on Skype locked in a hotel room on a day off on tour with Volbeat sometime this past March, I must mention my buddy Scotty Slam for providing some inside scene questions for me to ask Harold, being that Scotty was part of the Bay Area metal scene while this was all happening. Questions like uh, questions about Paul Bailoff's sleigh team and the Harold, Oy, Harold O. AIDS victim story came from Scotty. But I'm sorry, dude, we just didn't have enough time for me to ask him about Toby Rage, Andy Anderson, Wes from Ruthies, and Debbie Abano. Maybe there should be a part two to all this. I also want to thank Blue Mic Microphones and Skullcandy Headphones once again for providing this podcast with some serious, much-needed wares, specifically the Yeti Blue Mics and the Mix Master Mic Headphones that I need to do this podcast. Okay, here we go. Photographer Harold Oyman, co-author of the incredible book Murder in the Front Row and DRI bassist is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. Hello?
1: Danko. Hey, Harold. Hey, no man. How's it going? Cool, man. How you been?
0: I've been good, man. Um, uh, I know we were supposed to do this oh, eight months ago. Yeah. But since then, um, we've kind of kept in touch, anyways, through the emails and through the Facebook and stuff. Since I last saw you, we met last year in Germany. Um, and you were one of the people that day at the festival that I wanted to meet and we just happened to bump into each other somewhere in a hallway or something. And yeah, uh, yeah, and, uh, then we kind of looked at each other's schedules and said, Oh, we're DRIs playing, um, at Valken. So I'm, I'm lecturing at Valken. So I'll be there that day. But the weather was so bad that day. I couldn't make it out to your stage. It was like a mud, mud bath.
1: Yeah, I walked through that, too. It was total hell. It was crazy. I had no idea it was going to be like that. <laughs>
0: yeah. But uh, since that time, actually, it, it allowed me to get Murder in the Front Row out on bazillion points. I've since combed through it, I don't know, 20 times. Uh, if anybody out there hasn't heard about this book or or seen it, um, it is a phenomenal uh, historical Artifact of a scene that permeates popular music to this day. The bands that Harold has documented, you have documented some some choice moments in in rock and roll history, um, and you you were there. I have a, Thanks, a, a yeah, I have a series of questions um, that I'd like to ask of you pertaining to the book, but um, bigger picture would be that scene. Just the San Francisco Bay Area scene in the '80s, known for the, the the thrash metal it churned out. Everyone from, of course, Metallica and Megadeth, Possessed, uh, Blind Illusion, um, uh, Jesus. I'm drawing a blank, but everybody who Testament, knows violence. Testament, Death Angel, okay. Violence, yeah, uh, Mordred, uh, Forbidden. There we go. <laughs> Um, So uh, what I want to know is, first of all, maybe give, I know it's documented in the book, but how did you start photographing all these bands? And I guess, was it a lucky coincidence? Or did you have some sort of intuition that you were documenting history?
1: Well, at the time, it didn't seem like anything. It was just like, um, I just happened to be taking some photos of some friends that happened to play in bands, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, basically the, re- the main reason I started doing it is because, uh, just, I want to remember the good times I had, you know, and, uh, there was a buddy of mine in high school that used to take photos and I used to buy my lunch money to buy photos off of him, snapshots and stuff. And I said, hell, I could do that too, you know? So, um, I was just, uh, definitely in the right place at the right time, I think, you know, as far as everything went. So, uh, I always thank my parents for, uh, for my, my parents are from Norway. I always thank them for, uh. For to uh happening to uh, uh live here in the Bay Area, you know. You, Definitely the right place at the right time, you know.
0: Yeah. And you did the book with Brian Liu, another known photographer from that scene. Uh how did you guys how did you guys meet back in the day and and how did you guys meet again to do this book?
1: Um, well, we both grew up in Sunnyvale, the suburb about fifty miles uh um south of San Francisco, and um Back then, you know, it was like uh, uh, metalheads were f- f- few and far between. And um, I met him at a wine tea show. Uh, there was a club called the Keystone Palo Alto. It um, was part of the Stone family of, of clubs. And um, he happened to be at a bunch of wine tea shows. And I just hooked up with him. Um, we became friends and, you know, we shared a uh, love for metal, you know. Back then it was so hard to find stuff, you know. It's not like now with the internet and stuff, you know. Yeah. But uh, – we really had to try, you know, there was a few few places you could go um, to find stuff, like Tower Records had a good import section and stuff. But, uh, um, just happened to both be from Sunnyvale and happened to go uh, both like Wine T, who were really heavy and killer back then, you
0: know? Now, how did you guys decide to do this book together? What, how did this idea start?
1: Well, um, I've always wanted to do something like this, like, you know, basically ever since I started taking pictures and, um... Uh, I never found the right publisher, or I, I I never really even tried really that hard or anything. But uh, um, the more I took pictures, the more a lot of the band started saying, like Les Claypool from Primus. He said, uh, "Dude, you got to you got to do a book, man. You got to put this stuff out there. You got some great stuff." And um, the thrash metal thing started coming back big time. You know, it started uh, getting popular again. And um, uh, I was talking to Monty Connor from Roadrunner, the head of Roadrunner, formerly the head of Roadrunner. I guess they're kind of folded now, unfortunately. Yeah. But I asked him if he knew any publishers, and he recommended uh, Ian from Bazillion Points, Ian Christ. And um, Ian's the one that recommended uh, that I get together with Brian, who I've you know, like I said, like we already said, I've known for years. So it just seemed like a natural team up. He had some a uh, bunch of Metallica shots that uh, were earlier than mine. He he's basically the guy that introduced me to Metallica. So uh, we started talking about it, and it just made sense. And it took about two years to complete from start to finish, and uh, uh, it turned out far better than I ever imagined in a million years. I'm so happy with it, you know?
0: It's it's phenomenal. It's amazing. It impresses everyone I show it to. Um, and so many people, you know, have spoken so highly of it. Now, you you just said that Brian introduced you to Metallica. When he introduced you to Metallica, w- what stage are we talking about? What year? What era? Uh,
1: right like when Mustaine was... Uh, uh, Last few months, Mustaine was in the band. Okay. Uh, i uh, The first time I met them, they were at an Exodus show at the Mabuhay in San Francisco. And uh, James and Mustaine were two of the drunkest, wildest people I'd ever met. And Brian introduced me to him then. And um, uh, Brian kind of dropped out of the scene after a couple years. Uh, he just got tired of stuff. And um, basically just started hanging out with them, you know. And then the scene just started, you know, exploding from there, you know. But, when you, uh, I never would have guessed in a million years that Metallica would be so popular in a million years. You know, I, I never thought so ever. You know,
0: when you say so. hanging out with them, uh, it's it's you know any any Metallica fan knows that back in the day there was this house that they all stayed at and lived at. Um, did you spend time there? Did you were you one of those those guys? who, you know, was hanging out with Paul Bailoff and all that stuff and all those photos that I see from this kind of run-down bungalow house from the old Metallica days. Could you talk about that house?
1: Yeah, it was basically a place where everybody would go to after the shows and stuff. Um, And for the longest time, I actually thought it was a mansion. They call it the Metallica Mansion. And uh, before I actually went over there, I had this picture in my mind. It was this really nice place, you know, with like a... Not like an actual mansion, of course, but I thought it was a lot nicer than it was, but, uh, yeah. it was pretty much, uh, just a, you know, really small house in, in uh, El Cerrito. And, um, basically the band, uh, practiced practice there in the back, they had a little, uh, two car garage that they turned into a rehearsal space. And it was just the party house that everybody would go to, um, after all the shows at Ruthie's and stuff, you know, and, um, there's a lot of photos in the book from there too, but, uh, we just recently went there again for a, a article for Decibel magazine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we went to, to all the Bay Area haunts, and um, it was cool. The guy that lived there let us into the house and everything. We got to uh, check it out. It was total like flashback back to the days, you know. It was uh, it was really cool. But uh, yeah, that was just um, that was a place where everybody went to party afterwards, you know. Even though it was Metallica's house, it wasn't see when they first started out. It wasn't like they were this big or anything. It was just like they were just friends of ours, you know. It wasn't like wow, there's Metallica, you know. But, um, you know, obviously that changed the years. But, uh, yeah, it was just grand central for partying. You know, we'd go over there before any of the shows and drink a bunch of booze and and uh, do other various things. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was great fun, you know.
0: When, you, you know, a lot of people who, who you know, are into metal now or who have gotten into metal since, they don't realize um, how how... how like how hardline a lot of like metalheads were back in the day. Uh, every time I hear stories about the Bay Area, Paul Bailoff is a character that always comes up, and the word "poser" uh, is was thrown around way more often than it is now. Um, and I've said "poser" under my breath to myself about other people, but it just doesn't have people don't use it in the right way. They don't even use it anymore. Um, back in the day, uh, in, with the Bay area and the metal scene there, I've heard of this sleigh team. And w- was this the sleigh team headed by Paul Bailoff? Do you have any stories about the sleigh team?
1: Yeah, Slay team were just above, um, it was actually, became a comic book that Paul Bailoff's girlfriend, Lizzie, uh, ended up, uh, doing, but, uh, it was just, uh, this group of guys that would go around and, um, and, uh, mess with posers, you know, like, uh, I'll I'll never forget Ruthie's once some guy showed up with a Motley Crue shirt and Paul Bailoff literally tore the thing off of his, off of his chest. And, um, if you look at some of the pictures in the book, you'll see Paul's wearing some, um, some, uh, uh like, uh, they look like ribbons around his wrists. Those are actually, uh, t-shirts from, uh, posers that he would, um, he would, uh, terrorize and stuff. And, um, yeah, back then it was the us against them mentality. Uh, like all the whole LA scene with the Motley Crew and the Poison and the Rat and all that stuff. Yeah, um, that was basically the we lived for hating those guys. You know, <laughs> and, and and Bailoff was like the ringleader. You know, pretty much. Um, he was he just Bailoff was classic. I mean, he just lived and died for for metal. I mean, that was that was like he breathed it. You know, I've never met anybody that was so into metal as as him and and. Uh, he would always use the word heavy. Why so heavy? Heavy was like his favorite word of all time. You know? But uh, he was like this ringleader that would uh, just go around and terrorize you know, people. Um, they forget this one. And uh, there were a pair of gardening shears that he had drawn these teeth on and these really evil eyes and stuff. And he saw some guy wearing like a jacket with fringes on it. So he just came up and just started cutting those, chopping the fringes off this guy's jacket, you know, just out of the blue, terrorizing him and stuff, you know. <laughs> And then uh, he went to the guy's kitchen that was having this party, and he he started taking cereal boxes and cutting them in half. Cereal was flying everywhere. It was just – it was crazy. I mean, he he was just a classic character of the Bay Area scene, you know. And um, it's kind of sad, but when he was alive, he didn't really get the credit he was due, I think, mm. you know, for that. Yeah. In hindsight, people appreciate him now a lot more, you know.
0: Yeah, definitely. But, uh, yeah. Classic Bay Area character. I, I remember – Going to a Metallica show, um, I guess on the Justice tour, I bought a tour book, and on the back of the tour book there was pictures of Lars with um, Ricky Rocket, um, and it, it, I, I don't know if they were taking the piss by including the photo, but when when exactly did those kinds of walls come down? Did you notice they were coming down? If are they still up? Like, you know, now that Paul Bailoff has passed on, um, was he still so hardcore?
1: Yeah, um that's a good question. Um things are definitely a lot cooler now than they used to be as far as people getting along. You know, as far as, you know, like the glam rockers and the and the uh the more thrash heads, but uh it's not so cut and dry anymore. I mean No. Um certain, certain people, I'm not gonna mention any names, but Certain people from certain bands are into more more um, more poser stuff. And um, I kind of give some a couple of these people – I'm not going to mention any names, but uh, I kind of give a couple of these people a hard time just just because it's like uh, – I always say, what would Bailoff say? What would Bailoff do if he was here and he knew you were listening to this crap, you know? <laughs> but so you- um, it's, de- it's definitely mellowed out quite a bit. Uh, but Bailoff was definitely the ringleader. And uh, I'd say probably around time of Justice for All, that's when the two scenes started kind of mixing a little bit more again and it wasn't so cut and dry it wasn't so like uh oh my god there's you know Ricky Rackman or whatever but but um yeah but, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, if Paul was alive today he'd be carrying on the kill poser thing for sure he'd you know?
0: still be using the word poser like oh like...
1: totally completely it be, it'd be definitely a um uh a bigger part of the vernacular here you know i mean he single-handedly he was pretty much responsible for that whole thing you know and uh, not to mention Dave Mustaine, had a, he had a um, huge hatred for posers. I'll never forget once, uh, it was me, Bailoff, and Dave Mustaine were sitting at a, a table in uh, Palo Alto, the Keystone, and the guys from Wasp came in. Uh, and uh, you know, What's his name? Blackie Lawless and Chris Holmes, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And just the look and the vibe they gave those guys, I mean, it's like, uh, talk about just hatred towards them. I mean, that was basically the whole reason that everybody like lived was was to, was against posers, you know. Glam rock just sucks, you know. It's just I don't know. It was the to- total uh, opposite of what we were into, you know. <laughs>
0: Another, we talked about Paul Baileff, another character uh, that's, that's so huge in the book and in the scene at, in, at large is definitely Cliff Burton. Um, it's a known fact you guys were very good friends. Do you have Cliff stories? What's a Cliff story that, that you can throw out?
1: Hmm. There's so many. Um... Yeah.
0: It's a vague question.
1: Oh, and yeah, will yeah, for do. sure. Um, no, Cliff was the greatest guy ever. I mean, everything you think he'd be like, he was like. lying. And he was brutally honest. But um, um, I used to feel kind of weird about selling photos of the bands. Because I felt like, you know, I don't want to, like, you know, uh, make money off of them. Even though uh, my, uh, my uh, um, idea of that has changed over the years. Right. But um, uh, there was one time at the Stone in San Francisco... Um, I had some 8x10s of Cliff that I had blown up that I wanted to show him and stuff. And um, I ended up trading one for, like, a joint. One of the photos of Cliff. So I said to myself, I go, well, if, if I'm trading this picture of Cliff for a joint, I'm going to have to smoke it with him. So I tracked him down, showed him the photos, he th- dug the photos and everything, and we went across the street from the stone in this parking lot. And we're leaning on some random cars sitting there. And all of a sudden, he sees the picture I traded for the joint on the dashboard of this car and he like totally freaked out and he said, Oh, how come you didn't give me that one? You know, I got to get a copy of that one. Right. But, um, I thought it was cool, you know, kind of returned the favor as far as, uh, um, you know, made me feel better that I smoked the joint with Cliff, you know, but, um, Oh, he was just, he was just the coolest, most down to earth guy ever. I mean, um, thing about him dying was really trippy for everybody here in the Bay Area because most of us were so young we had never dealt with, like, death before, you know? We didn't know anybody that died. So when he passed away, it was, like, a huge thing. I mean, as far as nobody... I'd hadn't, i never even known anybody that had died before up to that point, basically, and either had very many people in the scene. So when he passed away, I was just, like, a huge thing. I mean, it's, like, um I think about him every day. I mean, uh, and, and the question is, what would Metallica be like if he was still alive, you know? Would they have gone through that load phase, you know? Would he have bailed because he didn't like the way they were going? Or There's so many questions that uh, I think about about that, you know?
0: I think a lot of people do who've been into Metallica um, pre-Justice, pre-Master. Um, a pre-Justice, I should say, um, where, where yeah, exactly. Metallica would have gone. Because reading extensively about the band, it's easy to see that Cliff was the, the, the light that kind of guided them. Um, musically, oh, for sure, for sure, yeah. Musically, when when I read about how Cliff's um, uh, personal listening was so wide, and he turned the other three guys onto so much newer kinds of music, I see them kind of. Sometimes I I feel that they're kind of trying to recapture that by getting into new forms of music or reaching out to different kinds of musicians and bands.
1: Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, he totally taught them about melody and um, he brought in classical elements and stuff. And uh, um, if there was like an argument between the guys in the band, uh, they would talk to Cliff and he would settle the argument and they would listen to him. They wouldn't even argue about it. I mean, if Cliff thought something, you know, should go a certain way, that's the way it went. And um, uh, it's sad because for the longest time, they they just went back on tour and get another bass, got Jason, you know, on bass. And they never really had a chance to grieve properly about him passing away up until like recently, so um, it's a trip. Uh, but uh, I think they're be- definitely back on track again. Their last album was the best thing they've done since the Black Album, I think.
0: I agree. I, I totally agree. Your name appears on a on a Metallica album as Harold O. AIDS victim. Is there a story <laughs> behind that?
1: Uh, yeah, it's it's actually pretty. Uh, it's kind of messed up, actually, but. Uh, <laughs> See, short story, short story long or long story short. Um, basically, uh, they were playing this big damn the Green Festival, which was like the biggest hometown show they'd ever played up to that point. And it was in front of like 60,000 people at the Oakland Coliseum. They were playing with Scorpions and Ingvay Y&T and Rat. And they were like second or third from the bottom of the bill. But um, I had these white OP shorts, corduroy shorts that I wore. <laughs> and I, I got so drunk at that show that... Um, uh I thought they were autographing my shorts James and this guy named Fred Cotton which was one of uh James's best pals
0: Right who's in uh, uh, Spastic Children right
1: Exactly he was a singer for Spastic Children and uh he was kind of a bad influence on everybody He was uh, I just he was probably second to Bailoff as as far as being a um a troublemaker will say But um so they they I thought they were autographing my shorts but in reality they were uh they were writing um Uh, stuff on the back of my shorts they they drew this big uh this big dick and big hairy balls on the back of my leg and they wrote AIDS victim fuck me I'm tight with AIDS on the back (laughs) of my shorts and and um I was walking around totally oblivious to this fact and uh um people said that they saw me walking around and I had my camera bag I was dragging on the ground behind me and it was leaving like a snail trail of beer because there was beer that had broken in my bag, and I was leaving the snail trail behind me. <laughs> but uh, I just got so drunk that I had no clue that all this stuff was on my, you know, written on my shorts and on my legs, big, big hairy balls and big dick they drew on the back, uh, you know, just to mess with me and stuff. And then after the show, I somehow made it over to the, the mansion, the Metallica house, and we went to Nations to get something to eat. And all of a sudden, somebody taps me on the shoulder, and it's a, it's a police officer. And he says, I really don't appreciate your pornographic garments, he said. I'll never forget that as long as I live. And uh, they were about to arrest me for being drunk in public. And luckily, James came up behind and basically saved the day and said that, was, uh, said that they had just played a joke on me, blah, blah, blah. And he'd make sure I got home okay and all this. But, um, yeah, there's a whole chapter devoted to that, that whole day uh, in the Metallica book, uh, the Cliff Burton, uh, To Live Is To Die. Right. So if you want more details on that, but... Uh, yeah, up to that point, that was the funniest show I'd ever I'd ever been to in my life. You know, getting to go backstage in front of in, in uh, at such a huge concert like that. But uh, then all of a sudden, the album comes out. It says Harold AIDS victim O, and <laughs> that's why it says that they wrote it on my shorts. You know, I'm still alive. The, uh, and, you know, like, that's but, uh, that's ride the
0: lightning, right?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think so. Oh no, ride the lightning says weird Harold O. Okay. Uh, Master Puppet says Harold AIDS victim O. Right. Okay. But then uh, you know I tried to turn it into a joke, and I said, "Yeah, I was about to get together with some girls the other night, but they they found out my name. They go, Harold, Harold O. You're not Harold AIDS victim O. <laughs> and I said I wasn't able to get laid for like a year because of that. After that, but that was just part of the joke, you know.
0: Um, you mentioned Fred Cotton. Um, he's he's kind of a kind of a back player in the whole Metallica scene. But for me, as a Metallica fan. What had been the Holy Grail for years was anything uh, by Spastic Children. I finally got my hands on some DVD bootlegs a few years back, and uh, uh-huh. I just want to know, like, did they ever record a demo? Because all I have are live DVDs, like live bootlegs of you know, various incarnations of, of Spastic children. But was there ever a demo? I knew even the song titles, but I'd never heard any recording.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, they never really went in the studio because uh, they had this kind of motto that if they practice too much, they might start sounding too good. So uh, basically, it was just live shows. But uh, yeah, that was Fred um, on vocals. Cliff played bass. Um, James uh, Headfield played drums. And they had this guitarist named James McDaniels uh, um, that jammed with them. And their idea was just to go out and have a good time and just play this horrible Mentors type spewage noise type stuff. Uh they actually had a song called A Ballad of Harold. And it was um it was a total insult to me, uh basically. Um I happened to be at one of their practices and uh Fred just started looking at me and singing, My name's Harold and I'm a dick. My name's Harold, blah blah blah. And next thing you know, it became probably their most popular song. <laughs> so which is really strange. But then um once Cliff passed away, uh they did a couple shows with Kirk playing bass. Yeah. Jason playing bass and and um uh jim martin playing bass so they had three bass players at one point and then uh i was in a band with fred and jim martin uh at the more uh called satan love puppets and we were kind of like a, a continuation of spastic children it was like this this kind of joke band actually um we did a couple shows and um there were these totally drunken obnoxious just wild crazy gigs that uh um, I actually have a video of one. I'll, I'll post some on YouTube eventually here, but, uh, um, Fred was just a madman. He was probably Headfield's best friend back in the day, and, uh, he would get get, his, get him and, and all of us into a lot of trouble, you know? What's he doing now? Uh, he's totally sober and cleaned up his act. Um, now I think he's, um, he, uh, I follow his posts on Facebook, but he's totally clean and sober now, so he's he's like a changed person. He came to our book signing thing, and, uh In Oakland about a year ago, and uh, he's doing great. Um, I'm not sure what he does for a living. He's some kind of journeyman, some kind of apprentice, something like that. But uh, yeah, he's a changed person. I guess he wasn't doing so good there for a while. Right. But um, I'd say, like I said before, uh, second to Bailoff as far as troublemakers go. But he's totally doing great now. And uh, uh, he's married and he's settled down and he's finally kind of mellowed out a little bit, you know?
0: What has the reaction from Metallica been for um, Murder in the Front Row?
1: Oh, fantastic. Um, they've just been ecstatic about it. Um, I heard James bought a bunch of copies to give out to his friends and stuff, and Kirk got copies of it, and uh, they've just totally embraced it. They think uh, they've called it like a yearbook, you know? And, and, and uh, uh, there's a couple of photos in there I was a little iffy about. There's like one, one of Lars uh, in a bathroom with a toilet paper roll towards his nose, and uh, he's doing something... Uh, there's this white powdery substance on the, on the picture there. Right. I was a little iffy about putting that in there, but I figure, what the hell, what have I got to lose at this point? You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, and it was, it was
0: okay by Lars.
1: Yeah, that, he was okay. Um, I didn't really actually specifically talk to him about that, but according to Kirk Hammett, that's uh Kirk Hammett. That's his favorite picture in the book.
0: And you what's know? your favorite picture in the book?
1: Oh, that's a toughie. Um, uh, I'd say just in general, there's a couple of shots of like Exodus and Slayer hanging out together and, uh, and, uh, that's a tough one. I probably couldn't pick just one, but just the overall vibe of the book is just the camaraderie. I think it comes across, you can see how much fun everybody's having and everybody's hugging and everybody's smiling. And, um, just the vibe I'd say between the bands back then was a lot more, uh, it was cooler than it is today, but you know, now it's big business, you know? Yeah. And one of the last, the very last picture in the book, I think, is uh, one of like Slayer, Zig Heiling, and they look all uh, they look all kind of, uh, they're not, nobody's smiling and stuff, and the, the caption is Slayer, wave goodbye, and we thought that was kind of a good, <laughs> good, good yeah, good way to, uh, t- to end the book, you know, it's like, it's serious now, they're not all hugging anymore, they're not smiling anymore, you know, so, Ian, uh, the publisher, did a fantastic job with the layout and everything, I think, too, you know, I couldn't be happier, same it's with Brian.
0: You know? Remarkable. You have another side too. You're in you're in Dirty Rotten Imbeciles. You've been in DRI since 1999 playing bass. Um, how did you join DRI?
1: Um, well, basically the guy they had at the time, Chumley, uh, bass player number seven. I'm the eighth bass player in a continuing series. You could be next. <laughs> um, but uh, basically the guy they had bailed right in the middle of a tour, and um, I had roadied for him like back in 1988 on the Four of a Kind tour when they toured the states with Creator. I wrote okay. it for Josh, the uh, uh, bass player number five, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And um, I had known them for a long time. But uh, when Chumley bailed, I was the only guy that kind of knew some of the songs. So um, they had this big social uh, chaos tour they were doing with like you know 20 other punk bands. And he he bailed right in the middle of the tour. So um, uh, we got together and uh, practiced for two weekends. And my first gig was at the Milwaukee Metal Fest in front of like 8,000 people. It was crazy. Wow. But uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a trip. It's been great. And That's how, one of the cool things about the uh, the book and everything and, and touring is uh, I get to meet people. All these people bring the book to shows to have me sign it and stuff, and it's great to get people's uh, opinions and reactions to it. It's just been so positive, so amazingly uh, overwhelming, almost. You know.
0: And um, there's a couple more questions I just wanted to ask you, and I'll let sure. you I'll let you be. Um, I read—I don't know if it was through your Facebook or somewhere else—but you you were invited by Metallica to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction and everything, and we all saw the induction. But when it came time to Cliff Burton to talk about Cliff Burton, uh, and Cliff's dad spoke on his behalf, the camera cut to the to the Metallica table, and there was a woman crying. But wasn't Cliff's mom dead? By the induction ceremony?
1: Yeah, she passed away a few years before. That's one of the things. That was probably the most uh, tear jerking moment of the whole weekend, you know.
0: Who was uh, that woman crying at that table?
1: Oh, I'm not sure. I think it's, it's I think, I don't think there was a, a dry eye in the place. Um, ah, Cliff's okay. dad got up there and, and said that uh, his mom, Cliff's mom, was the uh, biggest supporter of the band. And he said it was really sad that she wasn't around to see how far they'd gotten, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and stuff. But, uh, um, yeah, that, that was probably the most, uh, tear jerking moment of the whole weekend, but what a great weekend that was, you know, they flew me and Brian and like 150 of their old friends, um, from all over the place, from all over the world, uh, paid for the airfare, put us up in a hotel for the weekend and everything. It was probably one of the best weekends of my life, you know, so much fun.
0: And how, how was it when you, uh, you know, when we all heard about the big four getting together finally, what was your reaction about all that?
1: Oh, I couldn't believe it! Um, Timing—the timing on the book coming out when it did—and you know that was just—I mean, it couldn't have been better. The stars were definitely aligned. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to any of the shows because I was touring with DRI, so it's kind of give and take a little bit. It's one of the one of the uh, bum, bummer things about playing in the band is uh, a lot of times I'm on the road, so I I I don't get to see some killer shows like the Thrash of the Titans that you know all the Bay Area bands got back together. I was on the road for that too, so. You know, give and take some, you know, but uh, yeah. that was a special weekend, though, in particular. But uh, um, I basically, for some reason, I got this wild hair up my ass. Um, I had this uh, this package of fake mustaches in my bag for some reason. I don't know what the hell they were even doing there. But <laughs> So I, I had this crazy idea. I was going to try to disguise myself and see if the Metallica guys would recognize me. So as soon as we got off the plane, I slicked my hair back. I put on this really cheesy leisure suit like a used car salesman would wear. I put on glasses, and I put on this mustache, and I went to the House uh, the house of Blues, I think, where they had the uh, the pre-show party, and I was talking to Lars for like 10 minutes. He had no idea who the hell I was. It was classic. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he starts telling me about all the people who are going to be there, you know, and and he goes, yeah, Brian Liu, and then Ron Quintana, and Harold o. I go, Harold though really? All of a sudden, he looks at me. He goes, oh, fuck you, Harold. <laughs> I mean, I'd been talking to him for 10 minutes, and he had no clue who I was. So uh, they had like a, a roast kind of thing where we got up and talked talked about our, our memories and experiences, you know, in the past of Metallica, and uh, I still had the mustache. It was, like, you know, kind of crooked, so it obviously looks like a fake mustache. Everybody's looking at me all weird, you know? Right. But uh, it was a great weekend, man. And, I mean, the Metallica guys, uh, they got a lot of slack over the years from people, but uh, bottom line is they definitely uh, take care of their friends and their, their fans, you know, like no other band, I think. 30th anniversary shows they had, too, were just spectacular. I mean, Uh, They did those four shows at the Fillmore recently when Merciful Fate and Danzig and and Dave Mustaine, everybody came back and they were just, I went to two out of the four nights and it was just, what a great fuck, what a great uh, time and celebration. It was just so amazing, you know.
0: Did you have an insider's viewpoint when Mustaine kind of made up with, with, uh, Hetfield and all that stuff?
1: Yeah, kind of, um, I mean, uh, I just think he's always had a chip on his shoulder about it, even to this day. I don't think he'll ever get over it. I mean, um, you know, Megadeth did great, and they should be happy where they are. But uh, he's been talk. He's been trying to talk to James and Lars about uh, doing an album together, and I guess they don't want to have anything to do with it. And yeah, he's pretty much the founding father of thrash metal, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, um, between him and, and James, and uh, you know, maybe the Slayer guys, those three bands definitely. Uh, even a little bit of Anthrax, maybe, but uh, um I just kind of feel sorry for him because he just seems like he's kind of like lost. But um, I don't know. Uh, to be honest, I think he was he was a lot cooler when he was messed up on drugs and alcohol. To be honest with you, he wrote better songs than at least you know.
0: <laughs> um, and another thing, uh, and I'll bring it back to Dri. Um, what's all this
1: about you and Watane? Oh, the Watane thing, yeah. Um, let's see another long story short here. I'll try to keep it short. Uh, basically we played together at the Maryland death fest a couple of years ago. And, uh, I used to do this thing where I would go up on stage and I would dance across the stage doing this kind of like Russian, uh, vodka dance, like Lord of the dance kind of thing, really silly, stupid thing, you know? Okay. And, uh, I would do that all the time. And, and, uh, with the opening bands that played with us. And afterwards they'd say that dude, that was awesome. Thanks for coming out there. That was, that was great, man. Great fun, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I happened to have quite a few drinks at the Maryland death fest. And I went down to the show by myself. The rest of the guys are back at the hotel. And, uh, I said, I'm going to go up on stage and do it with this band. Watane. And of course that was the worst thing I could ever have done. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I went up there and did my little dance and the whole band stopped playing and beat the hell out of me on stage. And, uh, it was really bizarre. I mean, it was definitely one of the strangest days of my life. And, um, uh, Basically, uh, they, they, beat the hell out of me, pounded me. I had like footprints on my chest and, and puncture wounds from the nails they had and everything. Damn. And, uh, then, then the security guards thought I was some crazy stage diver. So they grabbed me and started roughing me up more. And basically Dan Lilker of nuclear assault and brutal truth. If, if he hadn't been there, I probably would have been, uh, beat up even worse and thrown outside in the, in the trash. But he, he kind of intervened and told the security I was okay. I'm with DRI, blah, blah, blah. And, and um. Yeah, it, just, it was just a weird thing, you know, and I, I guess I picked the wrong band to do that with, you know. Uh, if you go on YouTube, there's like an eight-second clip that uh, I posted from that, and it's, it's under a Watain and then Dancing Fool. And you can see eight <laughs> seconds of the pumbling, but uh, the funniest thing is the comments everybody wrote. It uh, seems like the people are so divided about stuff, like, you know, Fool got what he deserved, or, oh, Harold's cool, why'd they kick his ass? He's, you know, he, he's, he didn't mean anything by it, but... Uh, uh, basically, um, that was that, and then we had to play after that. So people saw us play after, and they saw that I was okay. So the, some people actually thought it was staged; that it was like set up in advance, you know, like a publicity stunt or something like that. But uh, when the guys um, in
0: Watane saw that you were on stage with DRI, did did they were they apologetic?
1: I don't know. I didn't see any of them or anything like that until um, we played a festival in Europe with them. I think about a year or so after that, I seen uh, Eric the singer. And I came up and kind of uh, said what's up and kind of apologized. And he goes, "Oh, don't worry about it. We laugh about it every day." He said, "You know, but um, it's just funny to read all the comments on the uh, on the YouTube video. How divided people are, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I. Um, how do they word it? I, I committed blasphemy by by <laughs> going on stage on their sacred altar and all this stuff like that. You know. But uh, yeah, I mean." I definitely picked the wrong band to do that with, and it just kind of snowballed from there, you know? Right. So I'm a little more a uh, little more careful about who I pick to do that with nowadays. Well,
0: well you were on stage when we were playing. I thought you were going to do that.
1: Yeah, that's part of the reason why I didn't do that.
0: <laughs> okay. I would have let you. Yeah. I wouldn't have beaten you up at all.
1: Oh, no, I understand that. But see, your roadies might not have known who I was. That's part of the problem, you know? <laughs>
0: I would have given you a shout-out while you were dancing across the stage. Uh,
1: hey, it's Harold! I was actually, yeah, exactly. I was actually dancing on the side of the stage when you I were saw, playing. But
0: uh, I saw that, yeah. Well, I'm thanks. sure our
1: paths will cross again.
0: Yeah, but they'll cross somewhere thousands of miles away. I have to lug that book everywhere. It's a big, thick-ass book.
1: Yeah, it's four and a half pounds. That's actually part of the reason I don't bring too many on the road with me to sell either. But... Uh... Yeah, it's it's it came out great. I'm so happy with it, man. And I appreciate all the the, the cool, the nice words and everything. Uh, Phil Demo from Violence and Machine Head uh, he actually carries the book around everywhere with him and he has this little list. He's trying to get everybody in the book to sign it no matter who they are. If they're just if they're just happen to be in the photo and they're hanging out there, he's gotten like the most amazing uh, amount of autographs in the book and he just has he actually carries a little list around with him. Wow every person in there and every page they're on. So he just comes up to him, looks at his little list and then finds the page they're on and has him sign it. So, and
0: he's, um, he's in it. Like, I know he's in it a couple of times, especially that like in the, in the back where James Hetfield and his old girlfriend or something. I remember.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's, uh, he's in the crowd shot from the stone and uh, yeah. um, Yeah. uh, he, He, I mean, all the people in the Bay Area just loved it. I mean it's like it's it's been like a yearbook and the response has just been incredible. You know, guys in Slayer, um, Dave Ellison, I mean uh, everybody's just totally embraced it and it's just we're already on the second printing too, and slowly but surely I'm kinda of working on part two, but I, uh,
0: I wanted to ask you about if there's a second book.
1: Yeah, um uh, it'll pro- probably just be me this time, not Brian, because he's pretty much used all of his shots in the first one. I mean, uh, so it'll be a little bit more more uh, just my stuff, but I have enough sh- shots to uh, fill probably another three or four books like that easily. Wow. I keep, I keep finding stuff all the time as I'm going through negatives and stuff. You know, concerts, I don't even remember shooting and stuff. Wow. So, yeah, I got a ton more stuff, so uh, you definitely haven't heard the last from me, you know?
0: Uh, well, Harold, on that note, I'm going to, let you do carry on with your day thank you very much for for taking time out and being on the podcast it's been awesome
1: no problem thanks for your time and um uh see you on the road with dri and thanks for all your support man really appreciate it good luck with you guys too man thanks harold Awesome.